I have to just say that it's one of the best possible things I think for an architect to do is to spend a qual- like a, a good chunk of time working for a contractor, working in construction. Episode 104. This is the business of architecture. Hello, Architect Nation. I'm Enoch Sears, and this is the show where each week I speak with a successful architect, designer, or consultant to discuss tips, strategies, and secrets for running a profitable and impactful architecture practice. Today's show is sponsored by BQE Software, the makers of ArchiOffice. ArchiOffice is the office and project management software built with the needs of architects in mind. And for a limited time, startup firms can get two free seats of ArchiOffice for a year. Go check it out at ArchiOffice.com. When you speak to the folks over at BQE Software, please mention this show. Because when you use ArchiOffice, you support Business of Architecture, which allows me to continue bringing you this content. Today, I welcome two guests to the show. First, we have architect Rand Selner. Rand is the owner and principal of Home Architects a nationwide practice specializing in custom residential architecture. Rand is also on the executive committee of Architects Creating Homes, an American organization of licensed architects focusing on residential architecture. Also joining us today is Marilyn Modinger, educator, architect, and founder of Runcible Studios, an architecture firm located in Boston, Massachusetts. In today's episode, we're talking about construction documents. In this episode, you'll discover the career route Marilyn Modinger has taken that has given her a powerful advantage as an architect, as well as how to make your construction drawings more understandable and clear so that you can minimize job site errors and questions. And with that, here's today's show. So welcome, Rand and Marilyn, to Business of Architecture. Thank you. Thanks. So first of all, Marilyn, I just wanted to ask you about the name of your studio, Rensible, because that's an interesting name. Can you give us the backstory on that? Sure. Um, well, Rensible is a word that was coined by Edward Lear, a poet, um, in his poem, The Owl and the Pussycat. And it was the very first book that I ever read when I was a little girl. And um, the he never defined the word exactly, but... Um, it's uh, mostly understood to mean an object of utility and beauty. Um, and it's also sort of a nonsense word, and I, I kind of like that combination. Excellent. So, and do you get many many questions from potential clients or people who are wondering what what where does this name come from? You know, I thought I would get a lot more questions than I do. I actually, I, I, it's split fifty fifty. People who say, <laughs> "I know that word," I the owl and the pussycat. I love that poem. Um, and half, half of people are like, what is that? And either one is great because, you know, I get to explain the story and tell the story or, um, you know, I get to have an immediate connection with someone who knows the same sort of strange esoteric poem, kid, you know, kid's poem. Absolutely. I wrote that down. I'm going to go read that, look it up, <laughs> read that to my kids. So Marilyn, tell me a little bit about your practice. Do you, do you specialize in residential architecture? I do. Yeah. Um, my, um, Right now, uh, so my, my studio is, is one year old as of two weeks ago. Um, and so most of my projects are um, single-family residential. Some are ground up. Some are renovations. Um, some have a historic component to them. Um, and my professional background has been uh, housing, multifamily, and single-family, um, and some commercial work in there. But my studio focuses on residential architecture. 
Okay, excellent. Well, you know, we started off by getting to know Marilyn a little bit better. Rand, this is the second time you're back on the show, so welcome back. Thank you. Nice and, to be here again. Yeah, and before we dive into, you know, talking about ArchSpec, I just wanted to give our listeners who don't know about it a little background on ArchCH. So we could let's talk about that for a little bit, but to give our listeners an overview, uh, Rand Selner, he's really been the, the driving force behind this. And I think the seed of it was planted when he saw that there wasn't an organization out there in the U.S. anyways that had the best interest of residential architects at heart. And he felt like the existing organizations didn't have the resources he was looking for. And he sort of felt like, a, I don't know, sometimes we all feel like that as residential architects, like a small cog in a big wheel in some of these larger organizations that focus on corporate architecture. So... Rand, can you give us the you know minute summary of how ArchCH came about, the the idea <coughs> and the vision, and then a little bit about your drive and passion to create this group and this organization? Sure, thanks, Enoch. <coughs> uh, <coughs> Arch uh, began uh, <coughs> with uh, three licensed architects that <coughs> uh, uh, were members of other organizations and. <coughs> We felt, like you said, that uh, it's kind of a dispossessed uh, position to be in in America. <clears throat> and we felt that, unfortunately, other organizations also seem to allow membership of unlicensed people. <clears throat> and uh, we think that there was a conflict <clears throat> uh, with respect to the best interests of licensed architects who are in direct competition with unlicensed people, although they don't have the education, the experience, the uh, licensure that <clears throat> provides the uh, same level of service competency, uh, et cetera. And so uh, we felt that uh, also that there was inadequate um, funding for organizations that were kind of the red-haired stepchildren of larger organizations, and they didn't really have a source of funding or adequate. And so we felt, you know what, uh, we think we're just better off starting fresh and clean. And so in 2012, we began ARCH, and uh, we, we started with the acronym first, ARCH, and then we had to figure out, gee, what's this really mean? <clears throat> and so we really worked and worked and worked for about a month. We finally came up with Architects Creating Homes. <clears throat> and, it works, works uh, beautifully. I mean, it's just perfect. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, that was not arrived at. That simplicity, just like a, a fine Mies van der Rohe design, it was not achieved uh easily <laughs> went through a lot of vetting and a lot of discussion to, to arrive at that simplicity. <clears throat> and uh, so we've grown from then. We have now have members, including yourself, uh, from California through uh, North Carolina and from Chicago down through Fort Lauderdale. <clears throat> and we're growing every year. And uh, we uh, can continue to create products now for Arch members, which simply don't exist. Uh, for licensed architects who design homes. You've got these gigantic Bibles for like specifications, like I wrote for Jurassic Park. I was the architect of record on about half of that for Universal Studios down in Orlando uh, several years ago. And we use big commercial specs to do that. And and you get a 2,000 page Bible, that's what happens. But when you're doing uh, design for homes, uh, which are among the are among the absolutely the most complex kind of projects you can do, uh, there was nothing. And so uh, we started essentially from scratch uh, decades ago and have been perfecting this ever since. And every time something happened, and, and all of us, I think, will, will understand what I mean by this, things happen to us in our practices every day that are either embarrassing or difficult or have 
liability concerns or make us feel somehow that we didn't do as good a job as perhaps we should have had we known more or had we had more experience. <clears throat> and so those are the kind of things that get tucked into our spec. <clears throat> and there's like uh, about 30 years of those in art spec. So all those little lessons learned, all those hard knocks that all of us get are in there. <clears throat> and so those people uh, that buy art spec get the advantage of having decades of seasons licensed architects uh, knowledge in there put into things like that. So <clears throat> it, it's, it's the kind of thing that like, I'll never let that happen again. <clears throat> yeah. And you know, where do you, you, know, either, you either put that in your contract or you put that in your specs. <clears throat> and so those that were appropriate for specs are in there. Yeah. And, uh, and it's not just things that, although it, it, liability is one good thing uh, and it helps you limit that, <clears throat> but there's things in there that just make for better architecture uh, for residences and small commercial. Uh, <clears throat> there's just uh, so many good things in there, like uh, a declaration of what the energy requirements are for the climatic zone that you're in. And it does it in a, in a graphic and textual manner. There are references for uh, building codes. Right out of hey, our Brad, before, IRC. Before, before we jump into the exact, you know, what's in Arch, Arch Spec, I'm glad you started talking about the formation of it, where it came from, the lessons learned. What I'd like to do is just yeah. have a little group conversation here because Marilyn actually sure. has a background working for a contractor, and so she can probably bring a lot of insight to the conversation. What I'd like to talk about between ourselves is what are some of the common deficiencies or mistakes or problems that happen once a job, once a project leaves the office, once the drawings leave the office and go into the field, you know, what are these common lessons learned that have accrued over the past 30 years? So maybe between the two of you, if you could each input a couple of common things that you've seen in the past or problems that typically uh, typically pop up, and then we'll move on to talk about how a good set of specs can help solve that and maybe some other things we can do in our drawings to prevent those things from happening. Well, Marilyn, well, Marilyn, why don't you go ahead and start that off from the perspective of working with a construction firm and uh, tell us about all the issues that you might have had not having specs available. Yeah, we would love that. Well, you know, I think one of the things, so I, I worked for a contractor in Charlottesville, Virginia um, for about four years, um, <laughs> and it was after I got a degree in architecture, uh, a bachelor's degree, and um, it was I have to just say that it's one of the best possible things I think for um, an architect to do is to spend a like a, a good chunk of time um, working for a contractor, working in construction. Um, Can I pause you I there just that, for one second, Marilyn? Because yeah. it, it is interesting that you graduated with an architecture degree and then yet you went to work for a contractor. Can you tell me a little True. bit about how that happened? Because I don't know one single person who graduated with me that would have even wanted to work for a contractor. So something must have happened there. <coughs> you. Yeah, the, the, the thing that happened was um, my fourth year of undergrad, I went to University of Virginia, and my fourth year of undergrad, I um, had the privilege of participating in a project called Ecomod, um, which is run by John Qualley, who is now at University of New Mexico. And um, that was a design-build project that was the first, first time it was done, um, and basically, we spent a year designing um, an affordable, modular, um, sustainable house that um, for a local um, housing nonprofit. And then we started building it. Um, we built it in an in a airplane hangar outside of Charlottesville. Um, and uh, it was all students. Um, I was one of the co-project managers um, as an undergrad. And um, 
So I spent the summer building and I realized a lot of things. I realized the loss in translation that comes between drawing and the field. Um, and I especially noticed that the loss was greater when, uh, when we first started because we hadn't ever built anything. As the summer went on, we got better at drawing because we were better at building. Um, and I just, I couldn't picture going to work in an office. After that, I, I, I was bitten by the bug and I really wanted to, um, to learn more. So, um, so I went into contracting and I started, I like to say, as the assistant to the assistant assistant. Um, and I just, I had a lot of really great mentors and a lot of people who um, took me under their wing and taught me a lot um, and threw me into the deep end more often than not. And on the, um, on the flip side, Marilyn, I'm just going to pause you there as well. Pardon the interruption. But on the flip side, I think from a contractor's perspective, you know, a lot of them would be thinking, hey, I'm not going to hire someone with an architecture degree. We know about those architects. Did you yeah. have any of that resistance as you were trying to get a job with a contracting firm? <clears throat> uh, no, not at all. They they asked me to come work for them. So, um, yeah, they were they were enthusiastic to have me on board. And I, you know, I think they certainly did take a risk. Um, I had no construction experience, no real construction experience besides building that house. Um, so yeah, they took a risk and I, you know, I took to it pretty well. So, um, I really loved it. Um, so yeah, it worked out great. Great. And then what were your lessons during those first years working for a contract being on that side of the fence? Um, oh my gosh. Well, I could fill like the rest of the hour with those. So I, I will, let's, let's <laughs> I take, think, let's take 10 minutes. Or um, five minutes. Exactly. So one of the, one of the things I think when, when we, if we're talking about specs in particular or drawings or that kind of thing, um, you know, one of the most important lessons, um, that I saw was, uh, so first of all, as a, as a contractor, I got to work with many, many different sets of drawings. It was a fascinating place to compare notes, basically. To, I saw way more different styles of drawing and styles of spec writing than I would have if I would worked in a single office. Um, and not only did I see them, but I had to execute them. So, you know, I might be working on several sets of drawings at once for several different projects and trying to build them. And there's no commonality, like there, there's commonalities, but there's no, like, there's a lot of latitude. <laughs> in the way um, that sets are put together and that specs are written. And so uh, one of the most important things that I um, saw happen that was super helpful was having the specs included in the drawing set. And it seems like a really small thing, um, but not having that separate book of specs was really great. There were many times when I would go out, when I was project managing and I would go out to the site and I would see the spec book being used as a doorstop <laughs> or whatever. Um, because it's just huge and cumbersome and, you know, no one was, was pouring over it like they may, maybe should have been um, to know all the details of, of installing something or whatever. So it seems like a tiny thing, but actually having the specs in as the last sets of pages was really, really helpful as a contractor. And that's how I've done everything since I've been drawing things. Let me, let me uh, push your pause button there for you, Enoch. <laughs> The way that Arch Spec does it, tell them, tell them, Marilyn. <laughs> well, that's part of the reason why I was particularly interested in it because it does. It's just a It's just several pages at the end of your drawing set that you insert. So instead of a separate book. So. Excellent. And then all the notes then go back and reference those specification sections. 
So, yeah. okay, so in addition to having drawing specs, which I agree is an awesome idea, and the first time I saw it, I thought it was brilliant, and um, something I also do in my own drawings, but tell us what are some other lessons, um, Marilyn, that you picked up working uh, for a contractor? Um, I think uh, understanding materials in a more, and, and assemblies in a more um, realistic way, I guess, when we draw things um it's a perfect line like we draw a line of uh, a line that that indicates plywood and it's a perfect line or a line that indicates um two materials coming together and being nailed together or screwed together um actually materials are rougher and more uh ornery than that so they don't always come together perfectly so i i have a much better idea of tolerance um and what different tolerances are of different materials um, what you can ask of different materials, um, what things you can do in the field versus what things you shouldn't do in the field. Um, those types of things. I, I think understanding how things go together is kind of a broad, that's a broader way of saying it, but actually how, um, what you can and can't ask materials to do. Uh, and so for me that, that narrowed it in some ways, you know, things that I drew as a student or as a beginning designer, like no way that could never be done, but it also, it also broadened it and, and knowing the materials and knowing what a piece of plywood might be able to do or the ways you can join it. Um, and then also knowing your crew and knowing what their capabilities are, um, and how you can work with them to get creative. Um, that was my, always my favorite part is when someone wanted to work with me instead of just administer drawings to me, you know, um, there's a lot talk about, you know, collected knowledge and talk about, um, craft and skill, um, and things that aren't exactly written down or learned from books, um, that capitalizing on that skill and knowing, knowing the team that you're working with, um, is, is really, really helpful too. Um, so it's a little harder to sort of pin down, but. So you said that you were able to look at dozens of architect's drawings and compare them on a daily basis. Doing that probably gave you a good eagle's eye view of things that you saw, best practices that you thought were good versus practices that you thought, eh, you know, that really doesn't work out too well. Can you give me a couple of the takeaways that you've personally picked up after having that kind of education in terms of give me a couple examples of things where, you know, maybe mistakes that you saw architects commonly making on their drawings and then other things besides the specs that you saw that were useful? Um, one thing that I, and you know, some of these may be regional. So I learned, I learned all of this in central Virginia, which I, now that I'm living in Boston and New England, there are differences. And that's one of the fun parts about construction. I think, um, I, one of the things that uh, is always interesting is dimensioning drawings. So how, how you, how you dimension things, how you call out, um, things like dimensions. Um, I used to dimension to, to what my client would want to see. Like, oh, they want to know that this room is this big or that big. I mean, I saw when I was building, I saw a lot of drawings that's come my way that were dimensioned that way. Um, but that's not actually how the framers need to know. So they, they don't want to know like the edge of the rough opening in wood. They want to know the center line because they have to figure out what, what the window, you know, they look up what the window is and then they figure out, um, you know, based on the center line. So, Things like that, that because I tried to build off of drawings that were nonsense, like that, that didn't make sense for how people build, um, 
you know, the, the drawings are a set of instructions how to build. They're not a sales document for clients. So, and I think sometimes we try to make them both and they can't be. Um, you know, I like the idea that the set of drawings is actually the contract. Um, it's just in visual form because if we try to write out everything, like place this window one foot beside that one, we would never be able to do it. So, um, so this idea of if it's an, if it's an instruction kit as to how to build, then you have to draw it how it's built. So that was one of the things I struggled with was dimensioning a lot um, when I was trying to build things, All trying right, to figure out just, like, let's just what is in. the intention? Yeah, let's just jump into dimension really quick. Let's talk about dimensioning best practices. So dimension to center line of windows, dimension to center line of doors. What else? Yeah. Well, so this is just me. I feel like I should put like this big, I mean, this is just me. We understand that. Um, yeah, let's talk and about all it. all these things are. <laughs> well, um, I, would, I would think dimensioning to rough framing yeah. as yes. opposed to finishes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the framers don't care like what the drywall opening is necessarily. Um, when they're framing. So I, uh, the other one that I really liked, um, that I use all the time now, and it sometimes can be a pain, but I like directional or intentional dimensioning. So align is my favorite, like with the two lines with the arrows, like align these things. And to me that I liked getting those kinds of notes when I was a contractor, cause I was like, great, don't tell me how to do it. I'll figure it out. I know what you want in the end. So I'll get there. And that kind of, instruct it, it puts it shows a faith in your um in in your crew who's building it and it also just says okay because if you if you dimension everything out to the last little 16th of an inch then they're going to follow that direction but if you say i don't care how you get there but i want these two surfaces to align then um so that's another one align is a good one good uh rand do you have any input on the best practices for dimensioning from your experience. Yeah, <clears throat> I think uh, architects tend to do uh, things that like they try to make things even, like concrete block eight inches, for instance, it's really not a seven and five eighths. And when you talk to contractors, they say, no, I don't want it to show eight inches. I want it to show seven and five eighths. And actually, if you dimension to just one side of it, what's the critical side? What's the side, like Marilyn says, that has to align with other things? So like when you're doing a fireplace and so forth, you want to show the dimension between the throat where if you're building in a piece of UL rated equipment into that, you show what that critical dimension is. So showing what things actually are rather than nominal dimensions, which I think a lot of architects have uh, gotten used to over the years, is, is I think what it really is is what the contractor wants to know. Because if you've got a 100 foot long building and let's say it's, there's a lot of masonry involved, and you call every one eight inches, that's not going to work out. And so a lot of dimensions, in fact, uh, what what we started doing uh, probably about 20 years ago is just dimension to one side of the wall and say, hey, these are all two by sixes. <clears throat> and so we would dimension to the same side of that wall all the way through so they can run a string and easily set a chalk line and go from that. Does that make sense to you, Marilyn? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I have done things where um, you know, when you're in CAD or whatever, you just hatch something to show that it's masonry or to show that it's tile or something. I will, I generally won't figure out like where are the grout lines, where everything. I just say, this is what I want to align with what. This is how I want it to end up. And these are the critical moments of alignment or proportion. Um, because no matter how many times, no matter if I drew everything exactly perfectly, 
with the, the, the joints between the masonry or whatever, um, I'm still not a mason. So I still don't have that. Like there's still, there would still be something that I would forget. And I, I had enough exposure to, to all of the trades and when I was contracting that I, that I now know that what I don't know is pretty vast. There's a, pre, I mean, so I, I'd much rather talk to them about the intention than, than sit there and try and figure out exactly what the mortar line should be. You know, that, that brings up a great conversation. It's something I've wrestled with. I think there was a, a few years ago, maybe it was five or maybe even a decade ago, there was an article uh, the AI put out of uh, some writer, I can't remember, talking about the intent of drawings, how, um, you know, you have to look at drawings in terms of uh, the general intent and that not, I guess the, the idea behind the drawing was that there are there's design intent and then they're showing every single tiny little detail that you could ever possibly imagine, you know, and that that's not the role and the scope of, of uh, construction documents. Well, in California, at least where I am, nowadays that is the role of construction documents. I mean, you pretty much need to show every single little bolt and everything like that. Do you guys have any thoughts on on that conversation of how, you know, what is the role of construction documents in terms of instructing the contractor about what they're supposed to build? Uh, we lost your video feed, by the way. Okay, I'll see if I can turn that back on. Thanks. Okay. Marilyn, would you like to address that? Uh, sure. I mean, I think... Um, there you go. I, I think this is a tricky, a tricky thing because I think it has a lot to do with the project, and I think it has a lot to do with the jurisdiction, and I think it has a lot to do with the contractor that you're working with. Um, and also, if, if you're in a design-build situation. So I was, I was doing some of that when I was a contractor, and, you know, I... I love thinking about projects that I did, like fairly large projects on like five or six, five or six sheets of drawings because I knew what I, I knew what was going to happen because I was doing both things and I knew my, who the crew was going to be. And so I could just be super quick, uh, and, and super slim with, with the, with the amount of information I was putting on paper. Um, and it's why I believe strongly if possible to get a contractor on board early in the process. Um, because if I know, as a designer, if I know who my contractor is and what their capabilities are and all of that, then I can make my drawings to to reflect that, to suit that. Um, otherwise, if I don't know who the contractor is, I have to assume that they they don't know everything, you know, that they can't read my mind or whatever. So I have to draw a lot more. So I think that there's something um, in that. I'm I'm trying to figure it out for my own practice and just and sort of a larger question is how do you, um, how can we get better about sort of drawing less in a way? I love to draw, but you know, uh, I think there's a way to draw less. Um, and I think that that's about developing relationships with, um, with contractors and architects. Red, your take on it. Um, we actually, because our practice is nationwide, we end up bidding out projects all over the United States, and <clears throat> it's almost impossible for for us or a client to even know who's going to build it. So we do have to draw more, <clears throat> um, and it's quite common for us to produce anywhere from 35, 50, or even 70 sheets in a set, depending on what the client has asked us to do. <clears throat> and it's not always just our choice. For instance, <clears throat> we find that 
we like to do our interior elevations when the client asks us to have that added. A lot of people call that cabinetry. It's not just cabinetry, it's the walls behind the cabinetry and other things like uh, the appliances in a kitchen. So there's a lot of interior architecture involved as well. <clears throat> we provide more sheets and sometimes we get criticized for that, but uh, we, we do, for instance, some of our drawings at a one inch scale. And the reason is because there's not necessarily more stuff it's just shown larger so you can see what it is because if you draw at quarter inch scale and you're trying to show some detailed things that's really hard to see <clears throat> and so you know if you get trying to get a cabinet guy or mason or somebody to, to to do things and trying to relate and trying to align to something trying to allow for certain utilities or something so we <clears throat> we end up having more sheets but we draw at a larger scale so that they can really see what's going on. So we tend to err on the side of having more drawings. And within those drawings, some people might infer there's more information, although we really think there's probably about the same amount of information and it actually eliminates questions. Um, we normally get hardly any questions during bidding. And <clears throat> the reason is because we have the specifications and because the documents are so thorough. Um, we we typically, and, and when you start adding them up, you really get a lot of sheets. You got, you got a floor plan for each level, you got a roof plan, you got an elevation, at least four, usually, and then you might have a blow up detail exterior elevation if you're doing something special, like with masonry joints or stone joints or something around some kind of a special tower for stairway or some feature element, <clears throat> and then uh, some people do, we don't do reflected ceiling plans, for instance, a lot of people do. And so that automatically, if you got three levels involved, that jacks your setup by another three. Uh, you got specs, that's usually anywhere from four to uh, 15 sheets, depending on what systems are involved in your project. Um, you got, you, you really better be doing a door schedule or finish schedule that you're going to get in trouble with your local board of architecture. Um, uh, there's also uh, master details that we include, like when you have steel lintels over masonry openings and the flashing involved with that and how all the joints are supposed to be weeped and <clears throat> all those things that get architects in trouble, we try to make sure are in the set. Um, and you, you really should be doing building sections, you know, at least one or two at least. And then you ought to be doing wall sections because wall sections is typically where the local building officials going to get your R ratings and your U ratings, which they want to see on the drawings, so they don't have to go digging for it. So, and then if you have a title sheet, and then if you have a sheet of index, and then if you have a sheet of general notes and uh, definitions, you know you're going to your, your set's going to get pumped up. And uh, we, quite frankly. Uh, uh, you know, if, if somebody's got a problem with the number of sheets, that's really not our problem. <clears throat> what we're trying to do is do a faithful job to make sure that we comply with the health, safety, and welfare guidelines involved with our licensure, and also to help the contractor understand what he's getting into so that he can get a reliable price so that he won't be inclined to have change orders for our clients. So <clears throat> that's our perspective on that. And that's a wrap for another show about the business of architecture. If you enjoyed today's show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. There are two reasons to do this. First, it encourages me to continue making free content for you to run a fulfilling and profitable practice. And secondly, it allows others to find this content inside of iTunes so that they can benefit as well. 
for free resources for running an architecture practice that is both fun, flexible, and profitable, visit businessofarchitecture.com and click the join button to unlock your account to Business of Architecture Insider. As a member, you'll have access to free tools and resources to help you get more clients, boost profitability, start a firm, and much more. Until next week, this has been the Business of Architecture. views expressed on the show by my guests do not represent those of the host and I make no representation, promise, guarantee, pledge, warranty, contract, bond, or commitment except to help you conquer the world. Bump music credit to Ben Folds 5, Do It Anyway.